Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey there, everybody from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I am Marisa Lagos. Hi, Marisa. Hey, Scott. This week we are marking the 25th anniversary of Proposition 187 passing. That is right, folks. It has been a quarter century. But we only look 15 years older, so that's kind (laughs) of a win. for yourself. (laughs) Seriously, the ballot measure, which was aimed at limiting public services for undocumented immigrants, it really marked a critical turning point in California politics. A lot of people see it as the beginning of the Republican Party's demise in California. We'll get to that in a bit. But first, Marisa, we had an election this week in San Francisco for the mayor and a few other things. Although I'm not sure everyone even in San Francisco knew about it. But (laughs) Turnout was about, what, uh, maybe 30 percent? We're hoping, yeah. Um, We can do better next year, guys. But in this election, we saw Mayor London Breed easily reelected. No huge surprise. And it does look like a $600 million housing bond will pass, which is, um, you know, pretty big news for the city that is really grappling with this housing crisis. Um, Also, that measure Juul put on the ballot, which would have rolled back a ban on e-cigarettes in San Francisco, soundly defeated 80 percent no vote. And you might remember, Scott, that the company spent 15 million dollars on that before backing out in September and saying, never mind, never mind, we're not going to spend any more. Yeah. And then the race we're really waiting to find out about, Marisa, a race that has gotten a little bit of national attention, the district attorney election that has the mayor's choice, Susie Loftus, clinging to an even narrower lead today than she was yesterday over public defender uh, Chesa Boudin. That lead is now down to about 879 votes. That's like a tie, basically. Yeah, I mean... Although we should point out that is ranked choice voting, so it's a little, little more complicated. Yeah, I mean, this is the head-to-head uh, in, in the actual first-place votes. Chesa actually squeaks it out ahead of, of Susie Loftus. Which is um, a, like a moral victory, I guess, if yeah. you end up losing ultimately. <laughs> I don't know if any politician's going to want that moral Could claim victory. claim a moral victory, take, even. I think they'll <laughs> take the office. No, this was a really interesting race. You know, Scott, we've seen over the past few years this move in cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, for these so-called progressive prosecutors. Um, and Chesa Boudin really embraced that. He um, is a public defender here in San Francisco, has really made a name for himself trying to overturn the state's bail system. Um, And of course, he is the son of um, two people who ended up in prison. Um, He was raised by uh, Bill Ayers of the Weathermen. Um, He had very sort of radical parents. Father's still in prison. Father's still in prison. And I mean, it, it is fascinating because I think in some places like, okay, for example, 
you know, a couple years ago in 2016, we saw um, races where, you know, there was basically DAs being challenged, you know, more more conservative DAs in places like Sacramento or San Diego being challenged um, by some of these more progressive folks. And in most cases, the progressives did not pull it off. I mean, in San Francisco, it's You never... kind of expect maybe it would have happened here? Well, I mean, and a politics? lot of people would say we've had a progressive DA in, in George Gascon. Absolutely. No, know? absolutely. And, uh, you know, of course, the wrinkle here, if people have been paying attention, is that George Gascon did resign about just three weeks before the election, and the mayor appointed one of the candidates as the interim DA, Susie Loftus. She is ahead narrowly. But, and you know, I don't know if there were exit polls, but you, just anecdotally, it does seem that some people, certainly the other candidates, were crying foul yeah. that that was, uh, you know, not a f- interfering with a free election, in a sense, giving her a leg up. But uh, it is, you know, so close right now. And in, in fairness, I know you, I think, uh, moderated a debate or two during the campaign. And yes, there were differences. But, uh, you know, this being San Francisco, they weren't that great. I mean, some of the basic things like supporting more accountability for police, they all agreed on on that. They supported Prop 47. Uh, so there were degrees of difference. Uh, I think the real difference with uh, Chesa Boudin, if he does get elected, is the kind of relationship that the DA is going to have with the police department. Well, and I think that this speaks to like, you know, it, I, I think what I would say, having watched Gascon's entire um, tenure here, is that, yes, on paper, he is a very reform-minded DA. But I think what happens in these offices is is it's, it's a very different to stand up and say, I agree, people shouldn't be going to prison for low-level crimes, for nonviolent crimes. But when a case is in front of your office, how do you change the culture of that office? How do you tell a victim who feels like it was a violent offense, even if it wasn't technically under our penal code, that, no, we're not going to pursue this? And so, you know, I think I, I do think there would be very significant differences in how they implemented policy between these two candidates. And priorities. But, and priorities, yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, it is, a, it is an interesting moment for San Francisco. I think, quite frankly, that Chase's strength in this race, no matter how it turns out, does speak to citywide how progressives have um, sort of made their mark on politics here. It used to be sort of in a couple supervisorial districts. You had these pockets of very liberal, progressive, younger people. And I do think that some of those sort of um, positions have been are spreading out. We are seeing more of a base of that, but still a lot of moderate Dems in San Francisco. Yeah. And somewhat interesting to me was that the second and or the third and fourth place finishers, especially Nancy Tung, who was a career prosecutor, spent most of her time in San Francisco. She's now in Alameda. A lot of the her voters second choice or third choice was Chesa Boudin, which is, you know, they're ideologically on the, you know, the opposite ends of that narrow, somewhat narrow, admittedly, spectrum. But nonetheless, uh, he, he it has not been as great a difference as we thought it would be. Yeah. I mean, I think that speaks to to how personality politics are really king in a city like San Francisco, where sometimes it's not just about where you stand, but sort of who you like and who your friends like and who you have a personal relationship with or a personal vendetta against. Yeah, exactly. Well, we were going to get to uh, Prop 187 in a minute, but maybe we should just remind uh, people, Marisa, that was 25 years ago. It was the Save Our State Initiative at so it was called, uh, passed 5941, was aimed, of course, at preventing people in the state Ill- illegally from using public services, including K-12 through schools and public health. And I think we kind of forget about this. It would have called on public employees to 
turn in people they knew uh, who were here illegally to the INS for deportation. Yeah, I mean, what I guess deja vu all over again, since we're seeing a lot of sort of the rhetoric similar in the Trump administration to what Pete Wilson, the governor then and other backers of this pushed. But um, definitely a different state in California. We're going to get into that with our guests. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Thomas Sines. He is an attorney for MALDEF. He helped develop the legal strategy that, in fact, struck down the measure. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. And we're talking today about the 25th anniversary of the passage of Proposition 187, which, as you may recall, was aimed at immigrants who were in California illegally, although many felt it really had a much broader effect and intention than that. Joining us is Thomas Sines. He's president and general counsel uh, with uh, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, or MALDEF. And, uh, of course, they played a key role in many of the cases involving immigration over the past few decades, including the successful challenge of Prop 187. And Thomas Sines, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. We always like to talk with our guests a little bit about, uh, you know, they're growing up. You grew up in uh, Alhambra, the sort of the suburbs of Los Angeles. You ended up at Yale uh, for undergrad, and then you went to law school as well. And you ended up working for MALDEF, uh, I think, just before Prop 187 was on the ballot. W- why MALDEF? What drew you to them? Well, it was my dream job. I went to law school wanting to do civil rights work, and I wanted to do work for my community, the Latino community. And MALDEF is the game when it comes to doing Latino civil rights, was then, and I think still is today. And, so and what really about was, your family? Like, did they, your family history, the, you know, the fact, you know, your mom and your dad, and like, did that sort of prepare you for that in some way? Did they steer you in that direction? So my mom and dad really emphasized the importance of education to my brother and me, uh, perhaps in part because neither one of them had an opportunity to go to a four-year college. They both got two-year associate's degrees when I was alive, my dad when I was five, my mom when I was 15, but they emphasized education, uh, and both my brother and I went on to higher education. So they did equip me in that way. I didn't, prior to law school, really know any lawyers in any depth. I think I may have met one or two. 
So talk about uh, the time, 1993, 94. It was on the ballot, Prop 187 in, in 94. But, you know, what was, what was, what do you remember, what struck you or strikes you looking back now at the, at the political climate, uh, especially around immigration and immigrants? Well, it was a very anti-immigrant time in terms of policymaking in California. And it started in the legislature in 1993. That was when California passed the law more recently removed that prevented undocumented immigrants from getting driver's licenses. Mm. Uh, and that was just one example. And there was bipartisan support for that legislation. So it was a time that across the board was viewed as uh, very anti-immigrant. And it was really exacerbated by the campaign around Proposition 187. Um, and now it's a completely different state. But So it's sometimes hard to remember that right. back then, California was sort of the leading wave nationwide of anti-immigrant sentiment. Do you, I mean, do you recall feeling like that was um, a, a sort of political sentiment tied to economic anxiety at the time? I and mean, we hear a lot of that conversation now. Um, I think a lot of people reject that idea that, that you know, some of it's just good old-fashioned bigotry. But it, it seems like there, like you said, this wasn't a partisan issue necessarily. I think a lot of 187 was driven by the conservative movement. But can you talk about that and like what you think kind of led to that? I think California, uh, California was going through a period of anti-immigrant sentiment, but 187 was a step beyond, mm -hmm. and, and it did become partisan, and it did become very much tied into the elections. I think probably it was tied somewhat to the economy, but I do think both then and in Arizona a decade ago and more recently nationwide, there's a lot of demographic fear behind this and mm -hmm. changes in the population, the growth of the Latino community. And political leaders can either address that demographic fear in a responsible way uh, or they can address it in an exploitative way. And, and that's what we saw with 187. And, of course, Bill Clinton was president at that time. And uh, there was, as I recall, funding in the federal budget uh, that some Democrats, including, I think, Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein, supported to build fencing along the border. I mean, was that part of what you're describing, that – that, that sort of uh, political environment at the time. Yes, and I, and I think the political environment continued because it's important to remember, and it became a key part of the case against Proposition 187, but the Welfare Reform Act, which mm -hmm. was enacted in 1996, included an entire title addressing immigrant eligibility, and a lot of it was really designed by Newt Gingrich, uh, at, who was then House Speaker, to replicate what was in Proposition 187. And it's important to remember that ultimately the Welfare Reform Act was signed by Bill Clinton. Right. Uh, and we're still stuck with some of those very restrictive rules. So we're talking about, you know, this, this ballot measure, which kind of got crafted by a bit of a ragtag team of sort of random people in Orange County. It, it had so many authors, I could, couldn't even tell you <laughs> how many people claimed to be authors. But I mean... You guys are watching this um, from where you're sitting at Maldef right out of school. And I want, I'm wondering if you were surprised when it qualified. Um, it seems like there was sort of a groundswell that, that happened with more mainstream Republicans kind of coming out and helping put or the Republican Party really helping push it. But I also understand you guys had a bit of a mole in the campaign. So you maybe had some insight. So Maldef, together with many other organizations, were monitoring a number of proposed initiatives. And 187, or what became 187, was the most extreme of them. The others were more limited in their anti-immigrant effects. Uh, and it was not as far as we know, close to qualifying with the signatures that it needed until the California Republican Party 
under the direction of Pete Wilson, who was governor, uh, put out a mailing to all of its mailing list with petitions attached and asked folks to send back signatures. And that's really what qualified it for the ballot. And we should, you know, like, sort of just to set the, the, the tone here, I mean, the, the, the economy was in recession. Pete Wilson was way behind in the polls against Kathleen Brown at the time. And it became really a, a fundamental part of his campaign. And I'm wondering what you remember uh, in terms of other Democrats, because I seem to remember that people like Dianne Feinstein were a little reluctant to come out against Prop 187. Is that your recollection? I think there was reluctance on the part of some, including Senator Feinstein. And she was up for election that year as well, we exactly. should remember. Exactly. Yeah. And, and But ultimately, because it did come be so, become so partisan, so clearly tied to turning around what you've described. Pete Wilson was way behind Kathleen Brown in the polling. And really, I think he used 187 and believes 187 is what turned that around for him and and got him reelected. So talk about, can you maybe just sum up for folks, like what was Prop 187? How do do you describe what it would have done and and the sort of implications beyond um, maybe just even what was written in the, the ballot measure, but sort of what were you guys talking about as you campaigned against it? Well, it would have affected how government services of all kinds would be delivered in the state of California. Its effects weren't really about undocumented immigrants' eligibility because they weren't eligible for many of the services that were involved. Some mm-hmm. they were clearly eligible for, including through 12 school. Yeah. Um, but it would have required every public servant to decide if they had a reasonable suspicion that someone was undocumented. And if they did, that would trigger an obligation to not just deny services, including schooling, but also to report them to the then INS and to various state officials to send them a ridiculous notice that would say, the state of California suspects you're undocumented, change your status or leave, and would have required intrusive inquiries for everyone who was seeking those services. So its effects really would have been across the board for everyone living in California, the greatest effects on anyone who fit a stereotype of the undocumented. But it really would have had dramatic day-to-day effects for everyone accessing government services. And of course, it played on people's fears and on emotion. And I want to just play uh, an ad that became somewhat infamous. It was very uh, effective, I think, in many ways. Of course, Prop 187 did pass, uh, but it was for Pete Wilson's re-election campaign. Let's listen to it. They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. Governor Pete Wilson sent the National Guard to help the Border Patrol. But that's not all. For Californians who work hard, pay taxes, and obey the laws, I'm suing to force the federal government to control the border. And I'm working to deny state services to illegal immigrants. Enough is enough. Governor Pete Wilson. God, you couldn't get more different than today. He's the governor and legislature. Um, I mean, it strikes me hearing that and hearing you describe it, that this goes even further than some of the things we see the Trump administration try to do. Well, I think it was much more explicit, that commercial in particular. I think it was a desperate move by Pete Wilson to get reelected. It's important to remember that prior to this, he was really viewed as a moderate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But his embrace of this anti-immigrant theme 
Uh, and then two years later, his embrace of an anti-affirmative action theme with Proposition 209 really changed his whole legacy. And now his legacy is really one that is shameful in politics. I think he's a bad word in many parts of this state, particularly in, in the Latino community. I think his involvement in Meg Whitman's campaign did not help her because he is such a bad word uh, when it comes to political issues in the state. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. And our guest tonight is Thomas Sines. He's the president and general counsel of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, or as it's often known, MALDEF. Uh, they played a key role in getting Prop 187 struck down. Let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> that. Uh, so you were a key, you were, as we said earlier, sort of fresh out of law school at yeah, the time. Yeah, can we ask, how old were you, like mid-20s? So I actually, it was two after two years of clerking, so okay. I was two years out of law school, but I was a junior member of the team at the start uh, over the course of the what, four years that it took to, <laughs> you to became conclude more senior. the case. I became more heavily involved in arguing in court on and there were, key issues. There were a number of ways at which you thought about, uh, Maldav thought about attacking Prop 187 and your argument, which was based on what, due process violation. I mean, talk about that and how that became the fundamental argument against it. So there were many claims. The key claim against Proposition 187, which is now viewed as the way you challenge all of these anti-immigrant laws, was preemption, that Mm -hmm. federal law is supreme in the area of immigration and no state, no matter how much they may dislike what the federal government is doing, can introduce and follow their own immigration policies. But we included lots of different claims. And as a junior lawyer, I was assigned procedural due process. Okay, you were assigned that? I was assigned procedural due process to brief for the temporary restraining order request. Um, And actually, procedural due process was designed as a terminal loop. It was designed to convince the judge that it was a preempted law because the procedure that you would be entitled to would be tantamount to a deportation hearing because it would right. be all about your status. And obviously only the federal government can engage in deportation hearings. So that was really what the claim was designed to do, to get the judge thinking about due process, but then kick him or her back to understanding that the law is preempted. So can you kind of walk us through what happened? So you guys went in and this, I mean, the law never went into effect, right? These Claims were basically successful in um, at the beginning. A temporary injunction is that right? So a temporary restraining order, okay. um, then a preliminary injunction, and that stayed in place until the case was resolved in in 1998. Um, there were two provisions that were implemented. They were very minor provisions that no one really talked about. There were penal code provisions that related to fraudulent documents, um, bad provisions, but not nearly as pervasive and potentially damaging as the other provisions. The other provisions, as you indicate, were stopped from the beginning and and never took effect. You know, we're now, of course, in this time, 25 years later, where immigration is and border security, all these things are so fundamental to what we're talking about politically. And do you see a direct line between that and and what happened 25 years ago? I mean, does Donald Trump sort of see that as a playbook that can win for him, even though it was so, you know, catastrophic for the Republican Party in California? Well, it's always astounded me that so many uh, leaders have exploited anti-immigrant sentiment for short-term gain, but they don't seem to read to the end of the book, which in California indicated a complete change in the politics of our state as a result of the backlash against Proposition 187. Pete Wilson did get reelected. After that, his political career was over. I think he had a presidential campaign that lasted about a minute and a half. And since then, he 
had no political future whatsoever. I didn't understand it when Arizona passed SB 1070 in 2010, and Jan Brewer used it to get elected governor because she had been appointed into the position after Janet Napolitano left to join the Obama cabinet. But she didn't read to the end because her career ended as well after that one That was the ID success. check basically saying that you should check the papers or the yeah, that status was the police of asking anybody they suspected and following up on those suspicions. Also really tangled up in court, including a Supreme Court decision in that case. But I, I think Donald Trump is following the same playbook. But unsurprisingly, because I don't know if Donald Trump has ever finished a book in his life, but he didn't read to the end of the story because it, it really is about short-term gain and long-term and lasting harm. I want to ask you, though, about whether you have concerns that with this presidency and the fact that you know Republicans were basically able to hold out and not confirm a Supreme Court justice, um, that a case like this might have a different outcome today. I, I know this one didn't make it to the Supreme Court. It was... Um, it, it was basically struck down in, in the appeals courts. But I don't know. I just wonder if you think the calculation has changed. Like, do you see this SCOTUS making a different call potentially? So I, I think it's hard to say. I will say that a, a Supreme Court that was viewed as conservative did review SB 1070 in Arizona and by and large got it right, including by 6-3 votes on a couple of the provisions. So I think these issues are always a little hard to predict. Because the issue of preemption is so critically important to business interests as well. So it's not just immigration. When I was in law school, preemption was a claim that was usually involving business regulation. Mm -hmm. We didn't really view it as something related to immigration. Now we all do, and that's largely because of Prop 187. But it really is an important doctrine in other ways because it is about the structure of our government. So it could come out uh, the same way. Now, do I think this Supreme Court is a pro-immigrant Supreme Court? No, I think that clearly it's not. Um, and that may have repercussions. But on some of the issues, because they understand it cuts both ways on issues of concern to both sides of the political spectrum, it could still come out the right way. Since Prop 187 passed, of course, there has been, and there was always this phrase, and I don't know what you thought about it, but this awakening the giant, the sleeping giant of Latino uh, pop, you know, people getting involved in politics. And we've had numerous now Latino speakers of the state assembly, President Pro Tem, uh, Alex Padilla, the Secretary of State is uh, Latino. And yet here we are in 2019, soon to be 2020, we have a Latino running for president, Julian Castro, um, who doesn't seem to be really getting much traction with Latino voters or anyone else. And I'm just wondering, you know, what do you make of that? I think we still have a lot of work to do to ensure that Latinos are included in leadership in every sector of our society. And that has repercussions for things that happen nationwide. I, I frequently point out that we currently don't have a single Latino or Latina in the cabinet of the United States. Mm. There's a part of me that took a certain pride in that when Andrew Puzder was Labor Secretary designate, and it looked like the Trump administration would start with no Latinos in the cabinet. I took a certain pride that we were the only major racial ethnic group not represented in the clown car of a cabinet that was being created at the time, but, but now I'm just angry. But that's just one example. We see it across the board in judiciary and leadership in corporations, leadership in universities. In many ways, Donald Trump was able to succeed by targeting the Latino community because there was a vacuum of perception in large parts of the country where there's not a large Latino population, and he could fill that vacuum with lies and with falsehoods and succeed in what was a long-shot candidacy for president. 
You know, so many of the folks who are in the United States without documentation Ill- illegally came from Asia. You know, they overstayed perhaps a student visa and then went underground one way or another. Uh, and yet Asians are very rarely part of this conversation. W- what do you make of that? Well, that's where I think the demographics uh, play a significant role. The Latino community is sizable, largest minority community for well over a decade and growing and growing in critical political battleground states because of their size and otherwise, whether that's Texas, Florida, Arizona, California, obviously already clearly on one side, Nevada, Colorado. I I wrote after the last election that uh, the people would focus on the Rust Belt because that was the story in 2016. But in 2020, the story could be about the Brown Belt, Mm -hmm. as I called it, which (laughs) is these states that are increasingly, because of the growth of the Latino community, switching their political allegiance or at least becoming competitive. Arizona is already there. Uh, and Texas is not far behind. So I think it's that size of the community and the impact that the Asian American community doesn't quite have yet in terms of the total political picture. So I think that's what plays a role here. You know, given everything you're talking about nationally, things really have changed in California over the past 25 years. Scott mentioned a lot of um, the people who are in power now who, you know, we've talked to, Kevin DeLeon, Ricardo Lara, who really say that Prop 187 was their awakening. Um, And as you mentioned, I mean, I was laughing talking about the preemptive argument, thinking how conservatives tried to use that to strike down the sanctuary law, which was passed a few years ago. Can you just sort of put in context where, at least even if we're just thinking about the Golden State, where things have gone and and how far you feel that your organization has pushed and and just where we're at now? Well, I think we celebrate or commemorate the 25th anniversary of Prop 187, not because the law was passed, but because of its effects. And those effects are what you've described. Really, California is now the leader uh, in immigrant integration and welcoming immigrants to the state in putting in place laws to protect them and encountering what the Trump administration is attempting to do across the country. So the state has completely changed socially, politically, and a lot of that was catalyzed by Proposition 187. And that is the hopeful note for the country, because I think we're already starting to see a similar backlash after SB 1070, Arizona started to change, again, because of a spark in naturalizations and voter registration and participation like we saw in California. And I think it's starting to happen in Texas as well. So I think that's an indication of what I mentioned previously. The Latino community has an opportunity in conjunction with other communities to really change the future politically of the country, a la California. All right. Well, Thomas Sines, thank you so much for coming in, looking back uh, at uh, Prop 187 and looking ahead a little bit as well, and for all the work you've done over all these years. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. For tonight, our producers, Guy Marzarati, our engineers are Jim Bennett and Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinnie Tom. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I am Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hi there. I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 